Well, I got a reminder on Facebook this past weekend that this week, this past weekend, one year ago, I was installed as pastor here at Compass Bible Church. And I appreciate that. But what it made me realize was I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to be a pastor. I'm not even sure if I'm supposed to be at this church. And many of you know my story, or you may have heard it before, but I'm supposed to be on my way to running my own company. I'm supposed to be, if I don't have it already, an executive, a C-suite level executive. That was my plan. But obviously God had a different plan for my life. And I fought it. I fought it long and hard. I didn't want that plan. This was far off of my radar. But God had a different plan. And the more and more I fought it, the more and more he made it crystal clear that this is where he wanted me to be. But it wasn't my plan. But now that I'm here, I can look back and see it was pretty clear that God had this lined up and he was putting it in front of me clear as day. But I continue to try to avoid it. I continue to try to find other things to do to take my mind off of what God had right in front of me over the last few years. Fought it. Fought it. I wanted to tell God, I wanted to suggest to God how he could use me to give him the best glory. I wanted to give him the suggestion on what I could do. God, if you just give me this executive position, if you just let me climb the corporate ladder, if you just let me run my own company, I will then continue to proclaim your name from the rooftops, and I will evangelize, and I will give you glory and honor in that position. That was my plan. That wasn't God's plan. He had a different plan for me that was right in front of me the entire time. And as I mentioned, I could see it clear right now, but I thought I knew better. You see, as I sit here with you tonight, many of you are in that same position. You don't have the exact same plan lined out in front of you, but many of you fight what God has planned for you. He has it right in front of your face, but you continue to fight against it and find other ways and try to suggest to God how you can best give him glory that you know better than his plan. And so you spend weeks and months and years and sometimes even decades just continuing to bump up against what God has planned for you, what God is trying to do in your life, what he wants to do for, to get glory out of you. You fight against it because you think you know better. You think you have a better plan. You see, God wants to use you, but as long as we continue to fight against them, all we are is stagnant when it comes to glorifying God and continuing to grow more like Christ. God wants to use you, but you're too busy trying to find the least resistant plan to righteousness. Right? I'm not the only one in here. Oftentimes when we plan up how we want to pursue righteousness, how we want to follow Christ, we want the least 
amount of resistance as possible. We want the least amount of persecution. We want the least amount of rejection as possible. We want to end this Christian life with minimal scars if it's up to us. You see, this is not a, a, a sermon about, you know, do you have Christ or not? You know, are you, and I'm, I'm going to assume, and we'll get to the other side of it, but I'm going to assume majority of you in here are in Christ. So it's not about having faith or not, but it's about pursuing what God has put in front of you and pursuing his plan instead of pursuing yours. You see, our, our passage this evening that we're going to get to gives us a prime example of how you can have someone who is devoted to Christ, who is following Christ, who, who knows the scripture, who knows the things about Christ, but yet when the plan is put right in front of her, she just misses it, just completely misses it, right? And, and, and she thinks she knows better. It can show us how we can have a plan, and it can seem righteous, it can seem right, it can seem holy, but it's completely different than what God wants to do in your life. And as we get through this passage this evening, my goal is to have you be able to examine your life daily and make sure that as you are pursuing holiness, as you are pursuing righteousness, as you are pursuing Christ-likeness, that it is the Christ-likeness that Jesus has laid out for you, not your plan with the little Jesus sprinkled on it to make you feel better. So let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to John chapter 11, and we're going to spend time in verses 17 through 37, but I want to get a running start in verses 4 and 5. And as we, we think about this passage, it, it, it's a great passage that we get to read through tonight because it, it's so much of our life. You have a, a plan over here of, uh, of two ladies, two gals that want Jesus, that expect Jesus to do something that they know he's capable of doing, something that nobody else can do. So they call upon him to do a certain action. They have a plan in place for Jesus to come execute. But then you have Jesus over here that has a much more glorious plan, a, much, a, a plan that is better than what they can even imagine, and he's trying to get them on the same page by telling them exactly what that plan is, and they completely miss it. They completely miss it because they're too focused on what they think will bring God glory as opposed to submitting to Jesus' plan and understanding what he's trying to tell them is going to bring the most glory. So let's pick it up in verse 4. I know we spent time on this before, but let's get a running start there to understand what we're talking about as we get into our passages. Verse 4 says, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. What illness? The illness of Lazarus. Right? Mary and Martha have called upon Jesus to come help Lazarus. But he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, the loving thing to do would be to go right away, right? No, not quite. This is what Jesus said. He said he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. 
So his form of love is staying there a little while longer because, again, if we go back up to verse 4, it says, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. A humanly standpoint, that doesn't make sense to us. But again, Jesus has a plan that's going to give him the most glory because he knows what's happening. Jump down into our passage, verse 17. It says, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Four days. Four days. That four days is intentional. That four days has meaning behind it. That four days, we need to understand what he's talking about there and why he's so specific with four days. And the reason behind that is because if you look at the Jewish practices for funerals, that the, when a person dies in, in Judaism, when a person dies, that they don't embalm. It is against the law to embalm. And so the goal is to, at somebody's death, is to get them buried as soon as possible, right? But there's this three-day period that they have, this three-day period where they put people on the shelf, if, if you will. They put them in a tomb to where what they believed, the, the rabbis believed at that time, was that the soul would hover over the body, right? The soul would hover over the body and come back each day to find out, is this, can I enter back into the body? Can I re-enter back into the body to, to bring that person back alive, right? So they would keep the person out for three days, letting the soul hover over as the body continues to decay and rot and all of that. And then after three days, then they would pronounce them dead because that is the, the, the maximum amount of time that a person can potentially live or come back to life. So after three days, nobody's questioning that this person is dead, right? The soul is gone. The soul no, is no longer hovering. It's time to get this body into the ground. So Jesus waits four days so that the three days can go past, and now we're on the fourth day. You can't tell me that this is just a normal circumstance. Only Jesus can bring this person back to life now. And this is a, a, a miracle that we haven't seen before, okay? And, and even to go further in that funeral process. So you have those three days that it's hovering over, right? You have anywhere from one to three days, they want to get the body into the ground to get it buried. And then there's this seven-day period called the Shiva, right? The Shiva is when you have, basically it's a time of mourning, and you have the person that the family member, the closest family member, they're sitting in their house. They sit closest to the ground, and they have people, relatives, and family, and friends come through, and they, they, they help them out, right? They clean the house. They, they help out with the kids. They provide meals. Some of the same things that we do with hospitality, but they do it seven straight days, right? And they have these professional wailers that come in that wail with them, right? They grieve with them, and that's called the Shiva. The Shiva means seven, right? You have these seven days after the person is buried that they are sitting at home. They don't come out. And then Beyond that, 30 days later, is a continuous cycle of remembering the dead, remembering those that are lost. They start to ratchet back on some of the rules. They come, they're coming out now, but they're still in, in great grieving status during this time, right? So this, this period of grieving, this funeral uh, entire process is a lot longer than what we think about today. But that's where we get back to four days. Four days is significant there. Verse 18, that was too much there. Back to the passage. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Two miles off. Why is he being specific again? Well, if you go back to chapter 10, what happened in chapter 10? They ran him out of town. Right? He said, I and the Father are one. They started throwing stones at him. And Jesus questioned, why are you throwing stones at me? Right? Am I not speaking the truth? But then they seek to arrest Jesus. And so Jesus escapes out of their hand, verse 39 in chapter 10, and he went away across the Jordan, the place where John the Baptist, 
John the Baptist had first been. Right? It said many believed in them there. So think about that. They go across the Jordan. They're having much success. And Jesus said, hey, let's go back. What? Let's go back to where they wanted to kill you? Yeah, let's go back. We got business to do there. Okay? So they're that close to Jerusalem. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brothers, right? They're a popular family. Many people are coming to console them, not just a small crowd, but a big crowd. But this also points to Jesus' ultimate plan. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated, seated Shiva. So she's, she's participating in the Shiva at home, seated, right, seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. He wouldn't have died. So again, he, she's saying, if you would have been here, if you would have done your job, Jesus, my brother wouldn't have died. And, and we know Martha, right, from, from Luke. Martha is the one, as, as Jesus comes to the house, she's complaining that Mary's not helping out. Jesus, she, tell my sister to help out. And what does Jesus say? Martha, 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 relax, Right? Relax. Mary is sitting up under my teaching, right? So if we see, if we think about Martha, Martha's that, that sister, right? She's the advocate for everything. She's the one that always has an opinion. She's the aggressive one. We also have these brother-sister relationships. Some of you might be in them where you have an aggressive sibling and you have a passive one. If you're thinking, I wonder which one am I, you're probably the aggressive, opinionated one. That's probably who you are. Uh, but nonetheless, that's who Martha and Mary is. That's that relationship. So Martha comes out like a, like a bull, and she, she's disappointed in Jesus. Verse 22, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. So she, she's disappointed, but then she still has that faith. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So this is not foreign to her. Right? She believes in the resurrection coming at the end. Right? We, he talked about this in John chapter 5. The resurrection will come in the end. Everybody will be resurrected. You'll be in one of two places. Right? You'll be resurrected and have eternal life or you'll have eternal death. You're going to be resurrected, he talks about in verse 5. Or excuse me, chapter 5. But then in verse 25 it says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Verse 28, when she had said, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when, he heard, when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in a place where Martha had met him. When the Jews were with her in the house consoling her, they saw Mary quickly rise and go out, and they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We heard that before from her sister. Same exact words. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? So I want you to think about for a second. We got three different people that have an opinion of what Jesus should have done. 
you got Martha, who, of course, comes out the, the gates like a raging bull. And Jesus, you should have been here. If you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And, of course, she probably told her passive sister what to say, and she came out and parroted the same exact words. Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. But then you get these, these, these Jewish mourners at the end in verse 37. They said, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? Could he have not healed him? And the answer is yes, he could have. But that wasn't his plan. That wasn't his plan because he had a plan that he was going to execute that was going to give him far more glory than anything that they could have thought of. And I'm just saying, you and I oftentimes get wrapped up in our plan and what we think can give God the most glory. And all I'm saying is we need to focus more on what Jesus' plan is and what he has right in front of us and how he can be glorified through that. And we need to do it wholeheartedly. And that's our first point this evening is wholeheartedly pursue Jesus' plan for your life. Wholeheartedly pursue Jesus' plan for your life. You see, you and I have plenty of, if only God would do this in our life, then I'd be on fire for Christ. If only God would do this. We, you all have an opinion about it. We've all thought about it. If, if God would give me this, if God would do this, if this would happen in my life, then I would glorify God even more. We think that way. Right? We, th we think that way about money. If I just had X amount of money, then I would glorify God more because I give more. If I just had this job opportunity, if I just had a, a better job title, I would glorify God more because I'd have flexibility and I'd spend more time in church. If my wife just acted differently, if my wife was, was nicer to me, if my wife was, was wanting sex as much as I want sex, if my wife was, was cleaning the house, if my wife was doing this, if my wife was saved, I would be able to glorify God even more. If my kids were well-behaved when I came home, I wouldn't be so angry, so I'd be able to glorify God even more. If my kids were saved, I'd be able to glorify God even more because that would be a great plan. If my kids did what I like to do, if my kids grew up the way I grew up, then I would relate to them more because that would be my plan. Guys, we got to stop it. we got to stop it because it's not about us. It's not about our plan. We can't tell God how... He can get the most glory through us. He tells us how he's going to use us. We are his instruments. We are his vessels. And we need to make sure that we understand that, and we need to pursue whatever God has in front of us. Some of you don't like what you have going on right now. It could be your home life. It could be your work life. It could be a friendship. It could be a relationship. It could be something that's in front of you right now that you have a problem with. And you say, God, if you just remove this, I will glorify you more. But God's saying, I'm not going to remove that because I want to get glory through whatever that situation is. But we just wait and we continue to press against it, press against it, thinking that God is going to change his mind when God is trying to get glory through you right now in your current situation. Whatever that is going on that you're fighting against, God wants to change your mindset. God wants your, your heart to be pursuing him so that he can get glory in a much greater way than you could ever imagine. Because here's the thing, man. I don't know if you knew this, but you and I, we make horrible gods. Horrible gods. 
It's just in our DNA. We make bad decisions. And it started way back in the garden. Right when Eve, Eve is tempted and she's just thinking, if, if only I eat this apple, I can be like God. Wrong, bad decision. Right? You can go to Genesis chapter 11. We get the Tower of Babel. If only we, we should build a tower, right? We should build a city. Let us, that's what it says, let us build a city. Let us build a tower. Right? Wrong, bad decision. I mean, we're reading it right now in 1 Samuel, right? Uh, the, the Israelites, let us have a king. We, we want a king. Let us do this. Constantly, we see this all throughout the Bible. Let us, let us. Anytime we get to make a decision on our own without God, without him giving us wisdom to do it, we, we fail. We're horrible at that. It's just in our DNA. See, God's goal is, is uh, for the Christian life is not to, to give us all the desires we want, not to make this, this life as, as least resistant as possible. That's not how he shows his love. You know who you can ask? Ask Paul. Ask Paul. Paul, Paul had a, a horrible life from a humanly standpoint, right? He, he's beat. He's shipwrecked. He, he, he's just tormented. He's spending time in prison. If you look at him and say God shows his love by making things easier, by giving us our way, then Paul has a horrible life. But you and I are reading about Paul every single day. And inspired by Paul. Why are we inspired by Paul? Because I, I love it how he says it in Philippians 2.8. He says, I, I counted all rubbish. I count everything that I gain is rubbish because I, I care more about gaining more Christ. All I want is more Christ. All you and I should want is more Christ. And that requires us to understand what God is trying to do in our life and align ourselves with his plan, not our own plan. The goal is to pursue his plan. The goal is to get aligned with his plan. And that's what he was trying to do with, with Mary and Martha, trying to get them to see that, look, I, I, I'm right here. I know everything that's going on, but I, the, the, he's right there trying to give it to them, and they're just missing it, missing it. You got to know and understand that uh, our flesh wants us to think that we know best, and so we have to fight against it. Here's evidence to, to let you know that right? How, how much are you suggesting what should happen in somebody else's life? Or how much are you suggesting this is what God is doing in your life as opposed to asking questions, getting counsel, allowing other men to get involved in your life and help guide you through the Holy Spirit that's in them to give you wisdom through life? How much are you suggesting versus asking? Right? When you read your Bible, hopefully you're reading your Bible, when you read your Bible, how much are you looking at verses saying, man, I, I got I to gotta text this to that brother right there because he's struggling with this. Right? How, how much are you thinking about other people as you're reading your Bible as opposed to reading, the, reading God's Word and allowing it to do what it do and do what it does and transforms us? Right? Reading the Bible so that you can be transformed, not to give it to somebody else. Right? Wholeheartedly pursue Jesus, his plan for our life. But, but it doesn't end there for Martha, right? Martha immediately says that comment, but then she goes back to having faith, knowing that God had the ability to do whatever. He could do whatever he needed to do at that point in time. Jesus could call upon God and ask, and he would give him whatever, right? And that's a, a, a general faith, right? A general faith that she had because, look, when we're talking about four days, nobody had ever 
come back from the dead from four days. Anytime we see it from Old Testament, Elijah or Elisha bringing somebody back from the dead or Jesus raising Jairus' daughter or the widow's son, any of that was they died and immediately they were brought back to life. There wasn't this four-day period. So this is something new. This is something new. And Jesus is trying to tell them it's right in front of them, but continue to miss it. Let's get back to our text and see Jesus give what is the, the peak of this message, possibly the peak of the entire Bible, in what he responds to Martha. Verse 23. Verse 23 says, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she's got that. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. He's coming into the world. There's that old quote out there. I think Ben Franklin was the first one to say it, but he, he said there's nothing in this life that's certain except for death and taxes. Right, death and taxes, and um, I, I, I don't know if that's that's equal because you know you can, I don't recommend this, but you could cheat your taxes, right? You could get away with you know manipulating however you want your taxes. Don't do that. Um, but when it comes to death, there's no cheating death. There's no manipulating death. Ten out of ten people die. Right? And so this message that Jesus is talking about, this hope that he gives us in this passage, this, this pinnacle message that he has right here applies to everybody that walks the face of this earth. It's not like, hey, it, it matters for you or you or you. It's optional. There's other religions. No, it, 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 it applies to everybody because Jesus is saying here's the answer to the big question of death that everybody has. Here it is. I have it right here. And Jesus, he revealed his plan. He revealed the solution that he had for us to have hope in it. And you and I sitting here today, we can have hope. And we can know this, know what the plan is for the end, and we can allow that to encourage us in everything that we do in this life. And that's our point number two this evening is let Jesus' final plan encourage you today. Let his final plan encourage you today. What's that final plan? Final plan is him saying, I am. I am. This is the fifth or the seventh I am phrase that he uses in the Gospel of John, right? I am, that, 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 that phrase of deity. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection. I am the life. You don't have to put your hope in a resurrection. You don't have to put your hope in something specific, an event. You put your hope in a relationship with Jesus, and he is all of that. Are, are we getting that, man? Jesus is here, right? Jesus is here, and below him is resurrection, and below him is the life. All we need to do is give our life to him, and we get resurrection and life. Praise God for that. Amen? And so we need to look at that and, and see death ha has no sting for us anymore. If you are in Christ, death has no sting. All death is is a transition from you to get out of this body, out of the earth, into the presence of Jesus, into the presence of God for eternity. 
death has to happen, but that's all it is. It's a transition. Right? There's no need for us to wonder what's on the other side. Right? No, no need to say, I wonder what's on the other side of that door. Jesus tells us exactly what it is. He says it's him. It's the same person that we put our faith and trust in. We can have those things that he is. Right? We, we, we went to the, the conference last week, all the pastors, and Pastor Mike and I ended up getting in the Uber with a, a Muslim. And we were just chatting with him, and he said, he told us that he was a Muslim. And one of the questions that Pastor Mike asked him was like, I got a question. Like, how do you get forgiveness of sins? Oh, what do you do? And the guy said, well, you just keep doing good works, and you keep doing the things that, uh, that of the Islamic practice. You keep doing these routines. You pray five times a day. Right? You, you do all of these things, and then once judgment time comes and we die, then we'll see what happens. Like, that, that's literally what they're living their life by. That's literally what they're preaching is that you just, you, you keep trying and trying and trying and trying, and you'll never have hope. You'll never know until you stand before God and find out, I, I missed it. Because you still have this sin problem. And, man, if you are in Christ here tonight, that is, uh, that is praise God, hallelujah, that we can look at Jesus Christ and say, we have the resurrection, we have the life because we put our faith in him, and we don't have to worry. You don't have to worry at all while, meanwhile, everybody else is trying to do enough good works that's never going to cut it. It's never going to cut it. And let me talk to non-Christians here because in a room like this, I'd be silly to say that this is 100% all Christians. I wish it were. And by the end of this night, I hope it is. But non-Christians, let me just talk to you or, or you that are unsure or still trying to make a decision that God is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He's letting us know this plan. He's revealing that to us right now. He's telling us what that is right now so that you can have hope throughout this entire life. Because guess what? You're never going to figure it out yourself. And look, I wish it were different, but all I'm called to do is preach the truth of the gospel. I wish I could have my way too. I wish I could do the things that I wanted to do. I wish I could live life the way I wanted to live it and just say I believe and Jesus would accept me in heaven. It doesn't work like that. But this gospel is right here. It's right in front of your face. I know it is because I'm preaching it to you right now. And if you haven't made that, that commitment to follow Jesus Christ with your life, give your life to him, don't wait another minute. Please. Please don't walk out this door because you can get in a car wreck right out there and die and that's it. Right? 155,000 people die every single day, and I'm, 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 I'm banking on it that 98% of those people have plans just like you and I, and it's gone. Give your life to Christ, and there's that hope that you can have, that hope of 1 Thessalonians 4.13. We don't grieve as others do that don't have any hope. Right? I, I do a lot of uh, memorial, not a lot of them, but fair share of memorials and funerals, and it just, it, it, there's, a, there's a, a vast difference between a Christian memorial and a non-Christian memorial. You see, because a, a Christian memorial is, hey, I, I kind of want to be where they are right now. Why you leave me behind? 
right? We, we're, we're celebrating. It still hurts because we miss them. But if you're a Christian, you know you will be reunited with them. You see, when you're with, you have a non-Christian memorial, it, it pains me sometimes because there's this, this false hope, right? Jesus, as he's done here, is giving them the truth. He's put it right in front of them, but too, many times people are too worried about themselves. And I have to come in and clean up this false hope of like, hey, it's going to be okay. They're doing all right. They're looking down. No, they're not. It's not going to be okay. Because the Bible tells us they're in a place where it's weeping and gnashing of teeth and, and wailing and unquenchable fire. I don't want anybody to be there, and neither should you. And so that's when, when Jesus tells us that he is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, we need to take that serious. And it's not something you just, you, we just do and just say, oh, okay, I'm good, and never even thinking about it again. This is so serious, eternal life. It's something that we should be thinking about constantly, our salvation, constantly how Jesus has worked in our life, constantly how Jesus wants to use us in our life. See, because when that happens, you can, like James 1, 2 says, you can count it all joy. Count it all joy. Because no matter what happens in this life, we've got the victory through Jesus Christ. Amen? We've got the victory through Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what kind of trials we face. But then Jesus ends that and says, do you believe that? Do you believe? Right? Not just head knowledge, do you believe, but do you really believe? See, a plan is not easy. It's not. Nobody ever said that Christianity was easy. Nobody ever said following Christ was easy. We even promises that it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. But guess what? We're never alone with it because guess who else suffered even more than we did? Jesus. So Jesus is saying, commit your life to me. And he's saying, I'm going to walk alongside of you. And guess what? I suffered worse than you could ever imagine. And I'm here to walk alongside of you. I'm here to have a relationship. I, 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 I get what you're going through. I sympathize with you. All right? Let's get back to our passage. And let's see that. Verse 28 says, when she said this, Martha, she went and called her sister, Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise up and go quickly, go out, excuse me, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So the crowd is following her there. This is all part of the plan. Many people can witness that. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. See how he loved him. The wonderful thing about a relationship with Jesus is that he has compassion. He has emotions. He feels what we felt at a much higher clip. He can relate to our sufferings. He can relate to the challenges that we have. He can relate to all the things that we have going on in life. But 
we have to call upon him. Right? He, he wants to hear from us. Right? God wants us to pray to him because Jesus can help us through whatever we're going through. And that's our point number three this evening is pray knowing that Jesus can sympathize with you. Pray knowing that Jesus can sympathize with you. See, he, he's not this distant God that's created that we can't relate to. All right, we can have a relationship with him. We can be in union with him because he's like us. Hebrews 4, 15, 16 says this. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He's tempted, yet without sin. So he knew temptation. He knew frustration. He knew sorrow. He knew weariness. He knew loneliness. He knew all of that. And so we can call upon him knowing that he wants to hear us and knowing that he experienced everything that we did, that we are here on this life at a much higher clip, and he can help us through that. We can call upon him. You're never alone when you're in Christ. Right, those different emotions that he showed here. Verse 33, it says he was, he was deeply, excuse me, deeply moved in his spirit, greatly troubled. Well, we want to understand what that means because, you know, we can look at deeply moved and greatly troubled and think that that's just like ours, but his emotions were far different than ours, right? Similar words, but he, he was thinking through a much bigger plan. There was much more going on as opposed to our limited view of it, right? The, the Greek word here that's used is also used in John eleven thirty eight, which we'll get to in our next sermon, but then it's also used in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark twice. And when he uses that Greek word, it means that he sternly rebuked someone, right, when he says he's deeply moved, right, sternly rebuked, stern warning. And it, even if you, you do a study on this word just, or these words, these emotions that Jesus is experiencing here, there, there's a wide variety of stuff, like you'll find. I mean, it, it, you can get lost in it. And so obviously there's not a, a, a clear cut, this is what he was feeling. But you can look at that word and how it's used and see that there's some, some, some anger, there's some displeasure. And you might ask for what? Like why is Jesus angry when it says that he's deeply moved in his spirit? Why is he angry there? Well, it could be a couple things, right? It could be the lack of faith that people are having that are around. They think Lazarus is gone. They're crying. They're thinking there's no hope not realizing that Jesus is here saying, I am the life, I am the resurrection. They're still crying, thinking there's no hope. There could be this anger that Jesus has with, 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 with sin and the effects of it. It brings on death, death. It brings on sadness. It brings on all. The, so he could be angry at that. We don't know for sure exactly what it is. But we do know that he was deeply moved and it was different than what we, was, we would do. And it says Jesus wept, right? Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept, verse 35. Well, the only other time that we see this is in Luke 19 where he wept for Jerusalem, right? When he saw Jerusalem, he was, he was sad over their blindness. And it says Jesus wept for them. Well, then you also see Mary weeping here. But again, it's different from how we weep because there's a completely different Greek word that's used here, right? Mary, when it says that she is, when Jesus saw her weeping, the Greek word is, is, is kleo, right? Verse 33, kleo. Well, when Jesus wept, the Greek word is dakrio. So you're talking about two different words using the same meaning of weeping, but 
how Jesus is weeping is different than how Mary is weeping. And this is the only time that it's used in the New Testament. So what Je- how Jesus shows his emotion, there's far much more going on than what you and I can imagine. But when we think about Jesus and how he can sympathize with us, we need to understand, again, God knows exactly where you are. God knows exactly what you're struggling, struggling with. God knows that challenge that you're trying to figure out a better way to do it that's going to suit your needs as opposed to glorifying Christ. And God may not have moved that challenge from in front of you because he's looking for you to pursue him more so that he can get the glory as opposed to you trying to do your plan. But we need to understand that Jesus is right there with us when we decide to pursue his plan instead of our own. Super Bowl 44, um, the Colts play the Saints, and there was a kicker named Matt Stover. Uh, Matt Stover was a professing Christian, and he's known in the organization as a, a Christian, but he kicked uh, one of the field goals in the first quarter, and he made it, 38-yard field goal, and he pointed up to the sky and gave praises to above, which I know many athletes do that, and when it goes south, they don't do it. It's kind of weird, but um, he did it when, obviously, he made the field goal in the Super Bowl. Fourth quarter comes around, and he misses a game-winning field goal. 51-yarder, he misses it. And guess what, he, guess what he still does, right? Points up, gives glory to God. And what was cool about that is the announcer caught it, and he said, look at that man. And he lauded over, over just the, the, what, what his actions were, right? Because he saw him do it at first when he made the field goal, and then he saw him do it when he... he Essentially, I'll call it lost the game. He didn't lose the game, but he missed the field goal that could have put them up, could have potentially won the game. And he said, look at this spiritual man. Whether success or failure, whether victory or defeat, he's praising God. He's praising God. And so I'm sure his plan was to make that field goal. I'm sure he wasn't going to be like, well, I'm going to miss this one so I can give glory to God. All right? That's not typically a plan that we would have. He wants to make that field goal, and I'm sure in his mind he was saying, if I make this field goal, then, yeah, I'll still glorify God. But God said, no, you're going to miss this field goal. But I'm still going to get more glory through your miss because people are going to see that, look, it it doesn't matter whether you make it or miss it. You're going to give glory to me. And so, again, I want us to see that regardless of the scenario, whether it's good or bad, whether it's something we want to be in or we don't want to be in, whether it's something that we want to continue, hit the eject button right away. God knows where you are. It's not accident. It, it, it didn't catch him off guard. And he's always trying to get glory in our life. He wants to use us as his instruments and vessels. And all I'm saying is whether it's good or bad, we need to be seeking righteousness. We need to be seeking Jesus through all of this. I'm confident that whether you're in a situation as I just described right now or not, you could be in one right now, or if you're not, then you're probably going to be faced with one this week, right? Where God puts something in front of you, and you could either say, how can I think of a different plan and suggest to God so that I can give him glory, or how can I take this that I may not have signed up for and say, how does God want to use me here so that he can get the glory? One's coming. All I'm saying is don't be like Mary and Martha where it's right in front of you and you miss it. You miss it. Don't miss it. 
slow down and let's make sure that we pursue and work hard to pursue what God has put right in front of us to make sure that he gets the glory and have hope that he has the plan for eternity. And he's already revealed that to us. He's given us the victory at the end by telling us that he's the resurrection and the life. So we know that, but all I'm saying is we need to be more focused on the plans that he's having in front of us on the way to that ultimate victory to make sure we glorify him here and ultimately he gets all the glory in the end. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these truths. It's such a hard prayer, Lord. It's such a hard realization to say that what what we're thinking about to glorify you can often be self self-absorbed. It can often be laced with, you know, at the end of the day, what what makes us happy or what makes it easy for us where we sprinkle just a little bit of you on it and make ourselves feel better. We know that our flesh wages war against the things that you want to do. And Lord, I just pray as men that we can fight against that, Lord, that we can do like Psalm 139 says and pray that prayer, search me, know my heart, try me, know my thoughts, and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, I just pray that we can pray that prayer and be sincere about it. And if there's something that, that is revealed to us that is seeking our own glory as opposed to being all in, wholeheartedly following you, Lord, that we would make those adjustments immediately because all that matters at the end of the day is glorifying you. Nothing else will last. And Lord, help us be men that are zealous to pursue that in all that we do. In Jesus' name.